Hello. The other day, I was, the other evening, I was out walking about as I do. I was on the west side of the city in an area called the Sparendama Burt, Sparendama neighborhood. And it had been raining. The rain, it wasn't raining at the time, but it, the floor was wet and shiny, lots of reflections. We're talking about, I suppose, seven o'clock, quarter to seven in the evening. And I'm about to go across this road. So I've been walking and there's a zebra crossing and I'm about to go across there. And the cars, their cars coming, the cars stop. And there's one person on a scooter. And that scooter just decides, well, sorry, I don't need to stop for anyone. And zooms by. I'm forced to screech to a halt and save my own skin. And I suddenly thought, I wasn't angry or, or anything, this is Amsterdam, but I thought, what is it like for tourists? You know, the tourists who deal with zebra crossings in Amsterdam, because once upon a time, people would stop. I mean, people do stop at a zebra crossing, but it's not often. And the worst offenders, of course, are not cars, they're cyclists. <laughs> and some of them are sort of like maniacs. And I have all kinds of plans in my head. I have, I've invented these things that, that um, there's something, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if it's called the snake, but if police are chasing someone, they roll this thing across the road and as the car drives over, it flattens their tires. So I have all kinds of ideas, inventions to deal with the cyclist because personally, I, I, I understand that we're all in a rush, but I try to stop at, at the zebra crossing. I don't know, I just feel it's a good thing to do. But even doing that can cause hassle because if you stop, people behind you can get mad. Like, why are you stopping, man? Drive over these tourists, drive over these people. And I often see tourists sort of screaming or squealing and jumping out of the way or being angry. And then you have the cyclists who are also angry. And it's just utter madness because Everywhere else I've been, a zebra crossing generally says, okay, calm down, let somebody go across. But in this case, it doesn't happen. I actually, uh, once, because I was taking my granddaughter back to her mom, I had to go across a, a zebra crossing, and of course I've got a, a, a one-and-a-half-year-old kid in a buggy. And people wouldn't stop. So about a day later, I saw some policemen. I said, uh, it, what happens, what would happen if <laughs> something like this, well, without a granddaughter, but if somebody didn't stop at a zebra crossing and I, well, got mad at them and got into a bit of a scuffle, maybe smacked them in the chops or something like that. I, I mean, I wouldn't do that, but I just asked the policeman. He said, no, 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 this is Amsterdam, I understand. And I told him people are crazy, nobody stops. He said, no, no, this is Amsterdam, you can't do anything about it, it's just that way. And even though he said he would agree with my rage, he would have to arrest me if I did such a thing. So, of course, I'm never going to do such a thing, but I do wonder what it's like for tourists who come here and see the cyclists. You know, it, it's... I mean, it. I can't explain how crazy it is. It really is. You need to get your affairs in order before you cross uh, or attempt to cross a zebra crossing because you don't know what condition you'll be in when you get to the other side, if you'll be breathing or heavily traumatized. Anyway, I just needed to say that. Um, what I can say, even though it's sort of annoying, this uh, zooming by at zebra crossings, the scooter pilot 
the face was so set, there's this face people have that is, I will neither look left nor right because I will not see anything but things I want to see and that's usually a very guilty face. So as the driver or pilot of this scooter zoomed by, I saw under the, there was this sort of well done up, all, you know, hair, everything fixed. Um, there was this look that seemed to say, yeah, I know I'm kind of doing the wrong thing, but I don't care. But to me, the fact that they seemed to know they were doing the wrong thing was good enough. And um, I suppose we can leave it at that. All right, we're getting on to the main episode, and I have to say something, which I've said before, and I'm going to continue repeating this particular nugget of information until either the law courts hammer me with an injunction and say, no more of that. But until that moment, I will keep telling you that the literary journey, my literary journey from the moment I thought I wanted to write a book to almost being published has been a long, long slog. But, of course, that doesn't make it bad because so much has happened along the way that I have material to put into a podcast series. There's not an actual theme for today's episode. It's just, I don't know, kind of looking at how I managed to do something differently in order to succeed. And it will probably help to know a little about the evolution of my reaction to failure. So long ago, when I was young, it would be, if something went wrong, I'd immediately do something else. So if this didn't work, then I'd try that way. And the other way was always something else. I don't know why I just did that. And that helped in many ways because I did so many things, went all over the place. Um, but that slowly evolved into something closer to okay, let me look at it again. So if something didn't work, then rather than run away, I'd say, let me look at it again. And that attitude, it really governed my early years. It, it's, that's just the way I functioned. It got me into all kinds of adventures. It's the same style that um, I applied to all my book writing attempts. So I'd have a book rejected and I'd immediately begin on a brand new book. Now, one negative of that approach is that none of the books I wrote really got the chance or an opportunity to develop. So also remember this is during a, a phase when I was so convinced that it was possible to write a novel in a single take. Uh, I'm sure there are people who can do this, but the truth is I can't. Uh, at best, the results of what I've done would be uh, a good set of ideas, um, quite untamed, but reasonably good, you know, worth working on and developing into something special. Um, and I suppose a good thing is that all of that writing and writing and writing, it certainly wasn't in vain because I do have a big supply of pretty okay first drafts and some of them will possibly come out in future. Others, yeah, that's it, sorry. Uh, the change in attitude, the thing that really made me stop running away from failure in terms of writing, or what I perceived as failure, was during the period of live storytelling. What happened was I had this thing where I'd only tell a story once. And so I knew that story had to be good. And the only way to make that story good was I'd go over it 
again and again and again and again and again in my head until there was absolutely nothing left to, um, you know, fiddle with. And it's the same constant iteration method or technique that I used while writing Now I Am Here. The first spark for this book appeared in February 2020, about a month before the pandemic turned the whole world upside down. And at that moment, there wasn't a story. There was, I don't know, there was just, I was just really in a, just not happy with something, perhaps not happy with what I had done in life, I, I don't know. And it's as if this urge, sometimes I get an urge to do things so I could make a lamb, it just something, just do it. It just forces me and pushes and pushes. And there's this huge urge to write again. But I had no idea what I was going to write. I knew I needed to write, but I didn't know uh, what I had to write. And that urge, it may sound silly, but it's almost, it was an almost physical force that seemed to take complete control of my thinking. The choice to write Now I Am Here, at the time it had a different title, that came at the end of March. 2020. So by this time, the world had become as still as a, I don't know, frightened mouse. Nothing was happening. It was very, it was a special period. At least I found it special. And what I did then, every morning, or at least once a day, I'd go to the waterfront and record a story for the now defunct podcast, Just About Now. And I'd do this, and I was just, I had nothing but stories on the mind. You, you did nothing else but exist, and, you know, so for me it was the stories. And then one afternoon, I suddenly remembered this 15-minute short story that I had told about a year earlier. And I don't know, it just got into my head, and it's like this pow! I... I, it, it, you just know, I, th there's no scientific way of explaining how I knew this was the one to do, but that was the story. So my first instinct was to immediately start writing, just, you know, grab a pad, pen, and start scratching away. And I should tell you that the way I work, I don't work from notes. I don't have all these notes, that detailed bits and pieces. I have scenes in my head. I just have like a, it's like a film. And that's what I work from. Um, perhaps in a later episode, it might be worth taking a closer look at how those scenes evolve into novels or stories. Anyway, this really weird thing happened. So the instinctive urge to write was blocked by, I suppose, an inner voice that's telling me, get a plan, you know, um, figure out what you want to do before you start. And... It's, it just made sense. Usually I wouldn't do this. I would just say, no, I, I know what I'm doing and I'd start writing and whatever. But this time it made a lot of sense. And so for the first time in my writing life, I waited and I thought for a while. And then I came up with a set of um, rules and mantras that I would use in this journey to write the book. And I, the, the deal was that I had to stick to them, that it didn't matter what, I could make no excuses, I could not chicken out, I just had to stick to them. I'm not gonna list all of them, they're too many, and some of them are just a bit, I guess, weird. But I can tell you a, a few, just uh, for example, you had things like, um, 
this time around, I'm really going to give it my all. And what I meant by that is when I looked, when I started this book, I first looked back, or in the, th in the pre-writing phase of this book, I looked back and thought, how did I tackle all the other things I had done? And I noticed, as I mentioned, that whenever it got difficult, I'd disappear and do something else. And I thought, no, this time around, don't run, just stay there. That the discomfort that what makes me go in another direction is that I feel very uncomfortable. So that discomfort, I just had to deal with it. And I would stay and I would not run. I would focus all my attention on the book. And, you know, that that's where this uh, I am going to give it everything came from. And I really used that a lot. Often I, uh, there were days when I felt just completely, I don't know, sometimes it doesn't work. I mentioned this in an earlier episode. I just feel, oh, this is crap, I can't write, blah, 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 blah. And I would remind myself, no, this time you're going to give it everything, and giving up is not giving uh, everything. Then there was this other thing about there not being a deadline. No deadline, just write, just write, keep writing, keep writing. And what had happened, again, I've mentioned this before, is I have a way of, I don't know, I have this weird target, and it makes no sense. So I mentioned a few episodes ago uh, about sending off three chapters, whereas I didn't have a complete manuscript. And this time I thought, no, just keep writing, just keep writing. Don't think about time or anything. Just write and write and write and write. And then you had uh, another mantra that was check it again, which is, it was, it's, I think that's, that's to do with making new drafts. So I'd write, and then I'd look at it again and again, and then I'd write rather than feel, um, because I'd written it, it was complete, if that's, I hope I'm making sense there. Um, so I'd check and check and check, and I don't know how many times I went through the manuscript. I mean, I really went through again and again, um, even by the time it had reached the publisher and gone through editing, copy, and all that stuff, there's still things you see. It's It's just unbelievable what you can't see. I don't know why you miss it, because it's like, how could, how could I miss this? But uh, yeah, that's the way it goes. Uh, I had another sort of rule, and that was to take a break. It was, and what I meant by, what I mean by take a break is, so I'd write, let's say, complete a draft, then I would just do something else, completely different for a few weeks. I think the longest gap I had was a month. And then I would come back to the book and see what it was it like. And most of the time, most of the time, I was quite happy with what I saw. There was, I saw what I needed to take out. I could see places where there was weakness and all that stuff. But I never came back with, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. So that was kind of nice. Um, there was, oh, yeah, this other thing, another mantra. There were a lot of mantras. That is, have no fear. And... Yeah, this I, I know this is not just, I'm not the only person who has this, but there's a way we can sometimes be our own worst enemy or our own biggest barrier. So I can have an idea, and there's nothing wrong with the idea, but there's this voice in me that says, oh man, what is that? That's, uh. And so the idea was to make sure I found a way of working without this fear, just 
if I felt that's what I wanted to say, I would say it. And the, and the idea being that you can always go back later and have another look. Closely connected to the have no fear mantra was this constant reminder to be free in all of my thinking. And it's very simple that I believe because you can correct, then let things just come out just whoosh, like that and then you go back and you rejig things later uh, the thing is that in order to have you know if you want to fix things you need to have something to fix and so i thought connected to don't be afraid just just say whatever 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 it's all good i know my intentions are good and then later on i could go back and sort of work on those things um, I think possibly the most important of all the mantras I had is, was the one that said something along the lines of, it's about the story and not about you. And this had many, many functions. First of all, it kept BS at bay. It also kind of got rid of most of the literary excesses. Um, it comes from something that i observed during the live storytelling i've mentioned it before the fact is if you stand in front of a crowd and you get applause at a point you you don't tell a story you perform um at least that's what i noticed and in previous manuscripts on uh, different novels i had i mean look, there's a lot of stuff there that <laughs> that was just showing off and you know so this time it's like no it's the story, it's the story, it's the story. And so I, I did that and I removed everything that I think was, you know, all the excess baggage. I dumped it and killed all the darlings that could be killed. And yet, some things managed to escape. I discovered that because when the manuscript went, came back from the editor, um, there were, and the copy editor, there were bits and pieces that, and that was, um, not too bad and actually uh, I think talking about that process of dealing with an editor and copy editor and expectation blah, 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 is a discussion that we can have in another episode so I do that follow all these rules um, deep deep within me was this yeah I don't know this determination that okay this time uh, I have to, it has to happen, it really has to happen. So, of course, that's what all those rules and mantras were for. There was also the additional awareness of, look, I'm getting on in years. And so the energy I had <laughs> 25 years ago, I don't have anymore. And I thought, do I really have the desire to have another rejection in the sense that to deliver material that just... I know in my heart it's not really, I didn't give it my all. And I just, I didn't feel like doing that. So, you know, I, I, I guess knuckled down or pulled up my socks or whatever it is you do. And now months and months and months later, I'm actually enjoying the benefits that come with a change of approach. So in guru mode now, <laughs> I say to everyone out there, if you're trying to do something and it just isn't working, don't give up. Just try something different. Try another angle, you know. Of course, I can offer no guarantees and if it goes wrong, 
I don't know you, so... <laughs> okay, no, seriously. Anyway, on that note, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, and uh, we will talk soon.